0: This is episode number 134 with Matthew Kimberley of The Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning.
1: It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 Now, the Founder Podcast, even the greatest entrepreneurs had help.
0: And so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e commerce, and so much more. So, if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is a hundred percent free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan, I am your host and the CEO of Founder Magazine. And for all of you guys that are listening for the first time, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Uh, We interview some of the greatest and most successful entrepreneurs and founders in the world. And I do whatever I can to unpack and pick their brain and just extract a ton of gold and knowledge and experience that they can share with us. So you can learn what it takes to build and grow a successful business. And today's guest, his name is Matthew Kimberley, super talented guy, very, very funny Englishman. I was uh, I spoke with him um, and met him at uh, a conference last year and uh, we really hit it off. Uh, we had some, you could say, it's interesting conversations over beers and uh It turned out that, uh, he used to run a really successful recruitment agency and now he's gone off and, uh, done his own thing and and doing bits and pieces. But what I really want to talk to him about is sales. Uh, now if you check out episode number 92 with Ben Shahib, that's, um, you know, another amazing episode where we talk about sales and, uh, that was such a well-received episode that I had to get another sales expert on here. And same with Gary Tramer from episode number 86. Uh, so, you know, sales is everything. You know, sales is You know the lifeblood of your business, and uh, if you if you can't sell, you know your product or service, you're in a bit of trouble. And you know that's why I asked Matthew to come on because he's got an interesting framework. It's it's really really solid as well, and and we're we're pretty big, you know, on um, understanding sales processes and things like that here at Founder. Because I think it's really really important. You know, sales is one of the greatest skills that you can learn that you can take with you wherever you go. And if you've got an amazing product or service, you're doing that person. Remember, you're doing that person a disservice if you don't let them know about it and uh, yeah so Matthew goes through his background you know it's really interesting he was he had a really successful business and he gave it up because it just wasn't him and now he's going off and done all these other things so it's really interesting and uh, we talk everything sales gives you a great process and framework for you guys to follow which I think you'll love Uh, So before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know we are working on many uh, different courses and products at Founder. And uh, one in particular that I know you guys might be interested in is it's a how to start an e-commerce-based business course, how to start from scratch. It's called Start and Scale. Uh, We actually found from our audience that uh, 30% of you guys you know I have hundreds of thousands of people that follow the brand on our email email list in on our newsletter 30% of you guys haven't even started a business yet so we want to help solve that problem so we've found someone that's an absolute superstar I won't reveal who that is yet but this person has built and launched multiple Uh, you know, many different uh, multiple seven-figure e-commerce businesses and brands, and uh, you're in for an absolute treat. So if you'd like to know more about this course and, you know, you're interested in entrepreneurship, you haven't started, or you might be saying, I want to start a business, don't know where to start, or you're you're, you're not not feeling it with your e-commerce business or your online store, just uh, sign up at foundermag.com forward slash e-commerce, E-C-O-M-M-E-R-C-E. So foundermag.com forward slash e-commerce and you'll be uh, notified when this course goes live and you can jump in and, and get at an early bird uh, special price, super discounted just for you guys. All right, guys, um, now let's jump into the show. The first thing I ask everyone that comes on is, how would you get your job? Well,
1: I fell into it. It's, a, it's been a series of uh, evolutions. It's been an evolutionary process. Back in um, 2006, 2006, I started a recruitment company. And that was the result of being a recruiter and thinking, hey, you know, I'm fed up with the boss making all the money. I think I could probably do this. So I got a partner uh, to invest, opened a company with uh, table football and, and you know, big bean bags and, and, <laughs> and comfy sofas. So I knew we were going to be a great success. And actually, the company is still a huge success. None of the original owners uh, or founders are involved in it anymore. And I was the first to jump ship because it was killing me. And that, you know, becoming a company owner... In a sales industry, professional services, recruitment, corporate sales was a result of discovering sales when I was much younger, maybe 23 years old. I uh, started working timeshare and that taught me to fall in love with the psychology of selling. You know, really, it was an awful, predatory, aggressive, hungry industry full of dodgy characters and dubious tax write offs and we sold very hard we'd use films like boiler room and um uh, i guess you know that was the precursor to the wolf of wall street based on the same story right we'd use that as our training video glengarry glen ross stuff like this and, and i fell in love with selling but absolutely hated the industry i mean it was an evil industry to be involved in uh i've still got some good friends who work in timeshare we just don't hang out anymore right and uh <laughs> And prior to that, that had come from when I was a kid, uh, I used to go out and juggle in the street to earn pocket money because I realized if my dad was going to give me a fiver uh, once a week, which would have been a great week, by the way, it was more like a a few cents or a few pence, I could earn Mm -hmm. multiples of that by taking my hat to the public, performing for them and encouraging them to give me money. So it was really an evolution. And when I realized that I took my my sales ability – to the limit, which is when I tapped out as sales manager, Uh, I've put you in the sales manager hold, Uh, I'm tapping out, right? That's why I said, that's enough. I can't cope with this. I can't cope with sales management. I need to go back to doing the selling, but doing it in a way that meant I wasn't dependent upon a a partner or a a boss or something like that. So I, I took what I knew and became a sales trainer. And that's where I am today. If you look at in-house sales trainers, employed sales trainers, they are not likely to be the most um, competent salespeople in the world. Firstly, I don't think that's a problem. I think you could be a very good teacher, just not a very good doer. It's like the cobbler's kid's shoes or whatever the story is. You know, the guy who makes the most beautiful shoes, uh, whereas his kids wear crappy shoes. It doesn't mean he can't make good shoes. Also, if you're a good teacher, you might have a better you 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 might be more patient. You might have a better way of phrasing things than somebody who innately gets it. But I would defend myself by saying that any and other self-employed salespeople. I would say if you're a self-employed sales trainer, then you're dependent upon your own sales skills to get your own customers.
0: Yeah, no, I can see um, for everyone listening. Me, and Matthew, are friends, and we met uh, earlier this year in the Philippines, and we had a, a really good time, and. Uh, He's a really good sales guy. He's 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 a man of many many unknown talents, but uh, selling is is one of them. So I wanted him to get. I want to ask him to come on to hear about his journey and and uh, you know talk to us about selling and and you name it sales because this is the lifeblood of every business. And before we talk about that though, I you know me and you had a really good conversation over probably a few too many mojitos and beers in the Philippines, and that was around. Your recruitment agency, because that was a multi-million dollar company and you said to me, Nathan, um, you know, even when when you were, you know, really, quote unquote, crushing it maybe, it wasn't everything that you maybe dreamed or
1: anticipated or told yourself it would be? Yeah, absolutely right. And a couple of of disclaimers that go with that. Yes, we were multi-million revenue from day one. And as you know, uh, revenue doesn't equal profit. Right. So um, we did sell. We sold um, millions of euros in the first year, doubled it in the second year. Uh, third year was on to, to do even more, but I jumped ship before the end of the year. And um, there, there were a couple of issues. But really, um, but my biggest mistake, I'll tell you the biggest lesson learned, is that I didn't employ a general manager. That was the biggest problem. I thought that because I'm the owner, I also have to be the manager. And I see many of my clients making a similar mistake. And I'm happy to jump in and say, listen, listen, why are you killing yourself with the admin, with the recruitment, with the hiring, with the with the financing? Why are you making decisions about which office to take? Why are you running the lunch run? Why don't you employ a general manager or a series of managers to take care of this? I believe that if I just kept myself as head of sales or head of business development and employed someone to do the general manager role, then I may still be there today. However, however, Nathan, um, and that's really why it was the biggest headache, because I didn't know what I was doing. And the counsel I was getting, either I wasn't listening to or wasn't correct for me, because everyone's got an opinion, right? Um, And so I was getting counsel from various individuals, and nothing really sounded right. And I felt the only thing left was to jump. Now, do I look back on it and say, uh, do I wish that I'd stuck around? No, not so much. I don't. Um, A little bit? No, absolutely not. I don't regret it a little bit. What I do think is, why did I make it difficult myself by starting all over again, right? I had a good thing. I had a good thing. Why didn't I just run with it? And Mm. honestly, Nathan, I think you perhaps know me well enough to say that, you know, if Kimberly's not interested in doing something, there's very little chance he's going to do it, (laughs) not known for getting overly enthusiastic about many things. And I just wasn't interested enough. The the, the prospect of sitting and discussing mainframe infrastructure uh, projects with large banks over endless meetings didn't excite me in the slightest. And the, the, the prospect of being responsible, this was a big one for me managing and being responsible for other people. You know what I hated more than anything ever in the world? And it still makes me cringe when I think about it now, and that's firing underperforming people. Or firing anybody. Mm. Firing people sucks. Anybody who says that firing people doesn't suck is a liar or a psychopath. And I maybe should have got somebody to do it for me, but I was still the owner. I was still the totem head. I was the I was the iconic face of the business. And I said, right, that's enough. I was too miserable. I was too unhappy. I don't look back now and say I want to run it. And I always swore then that my my next venture would be very, very streamlined and very lightweight. And I've remained true to that. And Probably suffered from. Suffered is the wrong word. Probably experienced less rapid growth than I could have done had I be prepared to bring more people on board. Interesting. Um,
0: how many how many people did you have uh, in the company before you left? Where you think you should have hired a, a general manager, an operations manager, or, or someone to run that side of the business?
1: thinking how many people we cycled through several you know some people went came and left when I left there were probably eight or nine people in the company
0: yeah it's really interesting because one of my mentors reckons once you get to about eight to ten that's when you look to get an operations manager or general manager or or some sort of manager too so because it makes your life much easier and um, it kind of
1: justifies it
0: yeah I had trouble
1: Day one, I had trouble from day one with the first two employees. You know, <laughs> but, and and what I tell people, I was having a conversation with somebody here in Malta. I live in Malta. Somebody in Malta who owns a, uh, a coffee shop here. They just dis- made the decision to close on. They always closed on Mondays, and now they've taken the decision to close on Tuesdays. And this pisses me off because this is my local coffee shop. So <laughs> I'm saying, why why are you closing on Tuesdays as well? Why don't you just hire somebody that can run it for you? Because They put a big sign saying, you know, in the interest of work life balance, uh, in the fact. Family Unity, we've decided we're not going to open on Tuesdays as well as Mondays. Oh, this is ludicrous. I said, why don't you, why don't you grow? Why don't you just employ someone? And they say, and the, and the answer was, well, no, we can't do it because we can't find anyone who, who can run it like us. And, and I said, well, it's, we know that it's possible because other multiple location food and beverage companies exist. Right, the owner of McDonald's is dead. And yet there are thousands of McDonald's all, Oh, sorry, the founder of McDonald's is dead. And yet there are thousands of McDonald's franchises all around the world. We know that it's possible. Um, and so, what? And so I would, I would berate my clients or my customers for foregoing profits in the interest of uh, not hiring staff or not believing that hiring staff is possible. And yet, perhaps I was, I was, I was guilty of the same thing back in the day. Hmm. Interesting. Before we move
0: on to sales, personal brands, all the cool stuff you're doing now.
1: I'm curious, how many people did you fire, man? Too many, maybe five or six. Why did it feel so bad? I knew it was the right thing to do. And I know that, you know, no job is guaranteed. You don't have tenure in any job unless you do and think that's a mistake anyway. I felt bad because as our hiring policy was very clear. We didn't hire experienced salespeople or recruiters. We hired newbies. There was an exception. We opened a, sec- a second division of the company where we took an experienced person and put them in charge. But we hired newbies and we trained them up. And I felt that if they didn't manage to produce results, in spite of my training, then it was a personal failure. Also, being fired sucks. You're looking somebody in the eye and saying, um, "I don't." You are no longer of sufficient value to this organization that the organization is prepared to keep paying for you, which is an awful thing to tell anybody. Um, I'm not saying that people who were like, we had a guy drinking on the job once. Uh, we had a, we, we hired a girl um, and he stuck around right? until he didn't. Um, that was correct. He just didn't understand there was beer in the fridge. He didn't understand the beer in the fridge was not for Monday morning. Right. He just, <laughs> I probably should have been more clear about that. We had, a, we had a girl who started who, who I think, yeah, I genuinely think that she had psychological problems um, to the extent where you know, we had to close down the office one morning in case she was waiting for us uh, <laughs> to, you know, to execute violence upon us. And I felt bad about that. And I fired her by email. Right. Um, wow. And, uh, no, no. I mean, this was a serious thing. We I ended up calling, you know, the authorities and <laughs> things at one point with this poor girl. But it's never a pleasant thing to do. I didn't feel a responsibility towards them as a kind of donor or a benevolent charitable giver towards them. I just felt that I had somehow failed them by failing to uh, recruit them properly or train them up properly. Interesting. I wouldn't feel bad if someone was being a douche, but we hired well enough that people weren't a douche and, and probably not enough. We didn't hire enough, you know, through having 15, 20 hires total. Uh, you know, some stayed, some, some didn't. We didn't hire enough to experience the full, uh, the, the, the full shebang of douchebaggery that I'm sure exists in the world. But um, if someone had been a complete douche, I would have happily let them go. But it was firing good people who were underperforming on sales targets. That really killed me.
0: Let's switch gears. Can you sell without being slimy?
1: Absolutely. Categorically, yes, you can. And I think the proof, Nathan, uh, is that you buy stuff, right? Probably on a daily basis, as do all of us. The people who are listening to this buy stuff on a daily basis. And how many times do they come away from that feeling? Yeah, I got to take a shower or I've got to have a steam wash or or, I've got to be de-slimed almost never to the point that when it does happen, it really sticks in our brain. Why? Because it's an irregular occurrence. So if us as consumers don't feel like we're covered in ectoplasm after entering into a buyer-purchaser relationship, why is it that so many salespeople have got this hang up that the minute they encounter a prospect, they're going to cover them in ectoplasm?
0: Why? I, I don't know. Why is that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, why is that? Um, that's what I'd like to know. You know, we we um, when we have a, a negative experience with a salesperson, then that sticks in the sticks in the cross. It remains stuck in our brain as being an example of what we don't want to do, and so we start to compensate. We overcompensate for not being slimy by either never making a sales offer or by making a weak sales offer, just because we don't want to be that slimeball who wants. Um, who once pissed us off, or you know, the kind of traditional car salesman that goes down in folklore and is is on every um, every TV show. There's always a, a, a dodgy ambulance chasing lawyer, or a slimy salesperson, or a, an ethical. Train crash of a uh, financial services provider. They make good TV baddies. They make good TV baddies. So we overcompensate for that and say um, sales equals slime. Therefore, in order to not be slimy, I'm going to not make sales offers, and this is problematic. So, I think the people the people who very rarely come across, or who who have the least. Pro- let me say, rephrase that. The people the salespeople who most who who most rarely experience the am I a slimy salesperson doubt are the people who are are confident about the the value of their product. I think if you have, and I think it genuinely is a confidence issue, if you are not sure that your product or service is for the person who's in front of you, you're going to have to go out of kilter with what you believe is best for the person in front of you or the humanity, the empathy side of things by delivering them something that they don't want or need. Right. So if you're a person who because you don't believe that they want or need your product, if you don't believe that they will want or need your product, then you will have uh, an ethical quandary, providing that you experience, you know, some some form of sensitivity towards other people. You're not a full psychopath. So if you're not sure, and this comes with experience as well. You know, it's easier to sell something that's worked for a dozen other people. It's easier to sell a widget that you use yourself. If you wouldn't sell it to your grandmother, if your grandmother was in your target market, you shouldn't be selling it to the person in front of you, right? If you doubt your ability to provide that service, then you've got to be um, upfront about that doubt and even upfront about that doubt with with your prospect if necessary. But I still think you can follow a systematic process even if you're not 100% certain in order to um, allow that person to make a decision. Right? Sales is not forcing somebody to do something. Sales is encouraging somebody to make an appropriate decision for themselves within a time frame that suits both of you.
0: Interesting. So when it comes to selling, professional persuasion, where's the first place people can start? You know, you, you talk about a system –
1: what 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 does your sales process look like? Can you take us through it? Absolutely right, yeah. So in, in order to sell, you can either leave it up to the prospect. So you can say, right, here, I'm going to stick up a sign that says, you can buy my widget here, and if people are interested in a widget, they'll find out about it. And some in marketing, you can say, look, widget's for sale, and people can come and have a look at your widget, and you stand there with an order book, and those who are ready to buy, buy right? Or you can make it more likely that they buy more likely that they have all the information they need by following a system for selling. And many large organizations have these systems in place. They're called pipelines. They're called um, you know, sales processes. They're called funnels. They're called uh, launches, right, where you make sure that you hit all the likely buttons that people have the information that they need in order to, and to build up some excitement and, and to give them an incentive to do it now instead of later, which is better for everybody if you believe that they should have it now rather than later. So, Or you can leave it up to chance. And too many people, particularly the solo operators that I tend to work with, leave it up to chance. So instead of leaving it up to chance, you can lead them through the, the stages of the pipeline, the, the, the steps of the funnel, the process. And what I've done over the last 15 years or so since I've been studying this stuff is take all of the individual elements and piece them together in some kind of order, which makes sense to me. And that is my professional persuasion program. It begins with the qualification. Phase. So who is the person you're talking to? Um, and who are you they, you qualify themselves? And then you qualify yourself as the vendor of choice. Then you enter the clarification phase. The clarification phase is when you actually let them know what they're getting, um, what it is, how it works, what the knobs are for, how to turn it on, um, whether or not it's for them, if other people are using it, if it's appropriate, um, you know, stuff like that, then you then you, once they know what they're getting, then you can start to quantify that with prices and sales conditions. So you say, now you've seen what you're going to get. Um, let's quantify what that means for you in monetary terms today, um, and then you close, right? Um, and those are the four big, big picture steps. So the qualification stage is absolutely critical, and, and I don't need to talk to all you your audience, I believe, about the importance of a niche, the importance of a target market, the importance of of making sure that the person in front of you has the financial means or access to the financial means in order to become a customer. You d- I don't need to tell your audience, Nathan, that if you want to sell hot dogs, um, don't sell them to people who are walking out of a restaurant, right? It's, it's, it's kind of the basis of qualification. Is this person, um, Is this, does this person have The emotional drive. Do they have the financial capability? Do they have the situational need? You know, do they need it today? Um, And then the the last part, which is often neglected, but which I learned from my mentor Michael Port, is: Do they belong in my world? You know, do I want them? Maybe if you're selling a widget, it doesn't matter. But if you're selling a service, do you want to work with this person? Do they pass your red velvet road policy, or do they fail the douchebag test? So that's important as well. There's got to be a good, a, a good deal of, of qualification. The more you work on qualification up front, the less, and this is after your marketing has done its job of bringing people to your front door, right? Um, then you qualify these people. Are you allowed in? Do you belong here? Is it appropriate for you? If you do that hard work and really hard, um, another one of my mentors, Taki Moore, has a, has a process called application selling. It's like if people want to work with you, they have to fill in an application. That's great qualification right? Because they're filling in the application themselves. You're not saying, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come in, come in, come in. That makes you a needy salesperson. That's unattractive. That, that shifts the balance of power to the buyer, where they're dangling the, the carrot, and you, the salesperson, are trying to drag it, grab it. It should be exactly the opposite way around. It's like, I've got something for you, and if you're lucky, you can have it. Oh, and not just lucky, but you've got to qualify. When you go to the doctor, the doctor doesn't say, choose me, choose me, choose me. He's like, yeah, you have a verruca on your foot, but I'm definitely the person to do it. Let me show you all the verrucas that I've cured in the past. No, he just goes, of course, I've got the answer. And if you give me enough money, I'll help you. you know, that's the way I think that, that we should be approaching things. That's, that's the mindset shift. Instead of putting a prospect on a pedestal and kissing their feet, you say, I am the prize. And if you qualify, you can get a piece of me. Right? That's difficult for a lot of people. And that, that's why, that's why people fear being slimy. I think they don't see themselves the prize. And when it comes to
0: qualification, do you think, um, someone buying, like, what are your thoughts on the Ascension model? You know, having, um, a series of products like, you know, throughout the sales process or in the funnel, having some sort of level entry product or service or, or something to qualify them. So, you know, have to pay a nominal fee to be somewhere or, you know, have it pay a nominal fee to, to fill out the application or a deposit. Or, what are your thoughts on those kinds of things as as, in
1: terms of qualification? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical. And you'll know, Nathan, as I know and any other person who's sold more than one thing in their past, that you're best customers are your existing customers. Anybody who is a happy customer who has already spent money with you and has got what they wanted will be more inclined to spend money with you again because the element of risk has almost been annihilated. There is no risk if you're going back in well there's always some, some element of risk, but it's much less. you know I've just launched um, a, a coaching program. Nathan and I have asked everybody who's come through, I've said, why did you join and a lot of them have said, well, because it's you and you never fail to deliver. And that's fine, right? I didn't even know, like somebody, one person said, I didn't even know what it was, but, um, you know, you've never let me down in the past, so let's see what you've got. I generally need it, right? That's the great, so that's, yeah, so the essential model, can you, can, yeah, people commit. Commitment creates commitment. Commitment creates commitment. and And people commit different things, right? You can commit money, but you can also commit time or energy or attention, to something as well, like one of the famous um, ah, qualification tests, I'm trying to think of the name of the the guy who told me about it. I can't now it's like, all these kids are sitting an exam, right? To pass the exam, you need to get 100%. And the first instruction is read through read through the entire paper um, before you answer any questions, right? And and then the first one is point number one, take out a pencil and write x at the top of this paper. Good. Point number two, um, stand up and shout, hi, I am here. And, you know, people around the class are doing that. So step number three, um, do five push-ups. And these people say, yeah, is easy. I'm easily going to get 100%. And then you get down to, like, question number 20, and it says, thank you for reading to the end of the paper. Do not do any of these questions. Hand in a blank paper. Right? <laughs> So that's a great qualifier. That's a great qualifier. It's like you see um uh, do you see what do you see why that's a qualification? You're getting people to you know if you don't do what's expected of you in question number 1 the chances are you're not going to pass the test. It's the same with interview applications. You, we see this a lot when you're hiring a VA. I've seen a lot of recommendation would be you know please please follow the application rules to a letter to a T. So I'm looking for somebody who's going to create let's say I don't know, curate my Instagram feed. I'm looking for somebody who's going to run my Instagram feed. If you think this is you, please submit an application of no more than 100 words and tell me what your favorite color is, right? And the minute you receive an application, which is of 5,000 words, and they don't mention their favorite color, you know that this person doesn't qualify to work on your team. They have disqualified themselves by not answering the right questions. So when it comes to the Ascension model, people can invest their time. You can ask them to read, you know, read this before you show up. Or I have a friend who who introduced me to action-based coaching where I, I used to have a problem when I was a coach. I used to do a lot more coaching than I do now. But the problem was I'd sit down with people I'd go, right, so here's what we agree that you will do before the next session. You'll go out and you'll have 10 sales conversations, then you'll report to me when you get back, right? Good, okay, so let's fix our next meeting for Wednesday next week. And they'd come back Wednesday next week and I'd say, so how many of those sales conversations did you have? And they'd say, well, you know, I didn't have any because the cat was sick or, you know, I had an existential crisis or something like that. And we'd end up having a therapy session. I wasn't good at this. So I said, I need a better quality of client who, who qualifies themselves up front. And um, I think it, it might have been James Shamko actually. I, I don't remember. And it, it could well have been. He's like, well, well uh, why not try something else? Why not qualify them for every single call? Which is, OK, here's what you need to do. At the end of our session, you agree to go away, have 10 sales conversations, and try this approach. Yes, good. When you've done that, send me the report, and we'll schedule our next call. But you can't have your next call until you've done that. Right. So that's an ascension model. You can ascend to the next call. If you have followed through, I think it's very important to allow people to make investments. And this, this comes directly from Michael Port, who I worked with for uh, six years at Book Yourself Solid. It's directly his quote, it's not mine, but it's stuck with me. People will make investments that are directly proportionate to the amount of trust that you have earned. Right. So if you're asking somebody to invest $5,000 and they've never met you before, then that might be asking too much. If you're asking them to invest 15 minutes to watch a video or to fill in an application form, that might feel right for them. And here's the thing, trust develops at different time for different people. So I stand up on stage, I give a keynote of 45 minutes to a crowd of people who've never met me before. One person comes up to me and says, I want you to be my private coach. And I say, that's 30 grand a year. And they say, (laughs) <laughs> um, yes or no, right? But some of them say, yes, some of them say, okay, that's great. No problem. And I say, well, but you've only known me for 45 minutes. How do you know it's right? And they go, I just know. We haven't even had a conversation, right? So it took 45 minutes for $30,000 worth of trust to be developed, right? Then i have been running a mailing list for probably five or six years as well. I'll have somebody write to me maybe once a month and say, hey, Matthew, I've been reading your emails for the last five years. Just want to let you know, really appreciate everything you do. And I just bought your book. My book is 99 cents or 3.99 or something on Amazon, right? So it took 5 years for $3 worth of trust to be developed. So the essential model is important, yes, but I don't want to stick everybody into a funnel. Like if someone walks up to me and says, "I loved your talk. I want you to be my coach." And I say, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. That's great, but first, have you taken my <laughs> have you taken my survey and bought my $99 course?" I'm not going to say that. That'd be crazy. So, yeah, I think the ascension was important, but I think we should consider it to be a – you can enter at any point, right? It's a carousel. It's a sales cycle, by like Michael Port says, rather than a um, – you must ascend from $1. If you're ready to jump to the $30,000 off, of, off the bat, then you should do that. Gotcha. So what are some other ways that people can build trust
0: quickly? Because I want to work towards closing this
1: loop. Yeah. The – Other ways to build trust quickly come from, um, I think the most powerful tool that you have in your arsenal is your client list. Whether you're working in corporate or whether you're working in um, B2C, whatever that might be, I think the element of, you'll be familiar with social proof from Cialdini, the social proof that comes with your list of existing clients cannot be sniffed at. Let's say you're working in corporate, right? And you walk into a meeting uh, with a, a purchasing officer, a procurement officer of a large corporate organization. And the only question they're asking themselves, and they will probably ask you out front, up early, because they're not, they don't want their time too wasted, is why should we why should we even think about working with you? So give me a pitch. Why why should we choose your firm? The most common response is to list all the features and benefits of your organization. It's like, you know, we have a database of 400,000 active professionals who are currently looking for. We have been in existence since 2001, and we have served XYZ. I think a much stronger response is to just dangle that social proof. Well, I don't know why your bank should work with us, but let me show you that Bank A, Bank C, Acme Bank, Bank of America, Bank of New York, Bank of Ethiopia, and 400 other um, world leading banks in the world currently choose us. I guess you just, I, I just presume that you'd be interested in finding out more, right? Or why should I run your, why should I run your Facebook ads? Why should I let you run my Facebook ads account? Well, you shouldn't, but let me show you a list of names of 90 of our existing customers. If it's all right for them, it'll probably work out for you. Would you agree? Well, yeah. Now do you mention it like that? So I think if you can dangle your client list through case studies, testimonials, and also just names, that can work well. You know that that really works like like you wouldn't believe. Done right, you don't want to be that hungry and needy salesperson. I said it before. If you can walk into a meeting confident that you have a solution that will benefit them, and you just show them, you show them why it will benefit them then that can build trust a lot quicker. What you say about yourself only goes so far. What other people say about you, and that includes your client list, says a lot more. Now, what if you don't have any existing clients? Well, then you need to start to get some clients, right? It's always more difficult at the beginning. Um, But there are other ways of building trust if you don't have more clients, and that's through the voice that you have in the world. I call them authority signposts. Are you somebody who has written a book? Are you somebody who's written extensively? Are you somebody who has spoken on the Founder podcast? Are you somebody who (laughs) has yeah right i'm going to dangle this i'm going to say look you don't you don't have to trust me but nathan and and the founder crew trusted me enough to to have me on the podcast to talk about it so if they think that their audience can learn about selling maybe you might think that i can teach you about selling mm. right these are the the standard credibility builders it used to be back in the day you could buy a mention on an affiliate <laughs> website of um you know cnbc news local affiliate in Durango, New Mexico. I don't know where Durango is. But, you know, and some some kind of tiny little town would mention you on their website, and you could say, "As featured on CNBC." I've got some guy who's still trying to sell me that. You know, every time I send out an email, he replies. With, Imagine Matthew Kimberly as seen on CNN, BBC, CNBC, Fox, etc. And he always spells my name wrong. So I'm never gonna, <laughs> never, gonna never gonna go for it, but. Um, this is the kind of thing, you know, if, if if you can be considered to be a talking head, if you can get a newspaper column, if you can exhibit the fact that other people are, are, are vouching for you, then that eliminates a lot of the, you should trust me, you should trust me. You know, if someone has to tell you that they should trust you, ask yourself why. What about if you come into that already knowing that this is a trustworthy kind of person? How do you demonstrate your credibility? Um, how do you demonstrate your experience through other people saying things about you? That's much more powerful than you listing off your own, uh, own re- uh, your own reasons to be considered trustworthy.
0: Okay. So we talk about trust building and rapport. What about the pitch? How, how, that, that's the hardest
1: part, right? For most. No, that's the easiest part. Yeah, but it's actually the easiest part when the rest has been done properly, right? So it is the hardest part. The pitch is the hardest part if you walk in with no rapport. If you walk in with no connection, if you walk in with no authority signposts, no credibility, it's the hard part if you're not exerting control over the sales process. right? So if you walk into a meeting and you allow the client or the prospect to bully you into doing everything their way. Then it is more difficult. But if you have set the tone, and I think you know what I didn't mention earlier is control. The the, the four stages of the qualification um, uh, section of 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 the sales process are qualification, connection, control, and credibility. And control is critical. You know, you it it's so tiresome to dance to the prospect's tune. The prospect who tells you, I just need to see like three or four different things, and then I'll give you a call when I'm ready. You say, no, 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 that's not the way that we work here. We work this way. If you go to the bank because you want and need a mortgage, you don't tell them, yes, they just throw me some figures and uh, I'll decide whether or not. No, they tell you, you've got to fill in this form. Then you've got to sit here and wait to speak to somebody. Then they're going to try and upsell you on homeowner's insurance. This is the way that we operate here you know you don't get to tell your uh, vendor how you want to do things i think that's a uh, for as a a prospect and 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 you know this this idea that the customer is always right is not a correct idea you the customer has uh, a right to be listened to but a customer also has a choice of places where they can make their purchase so i think i like to teach a lot of my clients how to control the process how many times do you hear thanks i'll get back to you or just just give me a price or just give me a ballpark figure how much would it cost or look I only need you to do 10 minutes work and, and a lot of people drop the ball at that point and they'll be like okay fine well I'll just do 10 minutes work uh, uh, and I'll give you a price and uh, I'll wait for you to get back to me but that's that's a waste of time you're better off not having that conversation at all so what was your original question uh, what about the pitch right so if you do all of this work um, where the, the prospect is qualified, and you've got a strong connection with them, and you're considered to be credible, and you are actually controlling the process, the pitch is the easiest part. The pitch is just like, here's, here's what I've got. Here's what it does. Uh, and here's how much it costs. The difficult part is what happens after the pitch, which is getting them to, to agree one way or another. But that's what we forget. It's one way or another. Your job is not to close every person you meet in, uh, to, to become a customer. Your job is to close every person you meet one way or another so that you're not chasing your tail, wasting time, um, following up on prospects who are never going to buy. I learned this from the Sandler uh, training system. Got uh, almost hired a guy back in the day called Marcus Kalki. The reason I didn't is because he was operating in a in a geographical region that I wasn't um, able to travel to for for his franchise um, training. And he told me he said, "Listen, um, I'm gonna we're gonna have a conversation about it, and I just want you to agree to make a decision at the end. Okay? That decision can be yes, and that decision can be no, but I want you to agree one way or another. Can you do that?" this is a great way of exercising control. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah wow. of, course. of course I can agree one way or another. Great. So here's what's available. And he said, the thing happens like this. You meet, you know, we meet twice a month in London and it costs £3,000 a month. And he did all the other stuff, right? Here are some of the other people that are members. Here's what will benefit you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the price is $3,000 a month. Now, he created his own urgency, right? I, with me. He didn't have to say... He didn't have to say, and the price goes up on Monday, because I'd already agreed to make a decision at the end of that conversation. Yeah, wow. Um now I might have wiggled out of it. I said, "Oh, can I have a couple of days to think about it?" And here's what here's what happened at a previous step. He goes, "Right, I need you to complete this application form." So he's starting to get me to commit early on. Right, I'm completing an application form. I'm doing a personality test. So this is before uh, you spoke.
0: Test. Before he said, "On to make a
1: decision." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is before we spoke, and it was before it was initial. It was before the initial offer. Right, it was yeah. like sure. Um, in order, this is a qualification phase. Right, in order to have a chat with me about whether or not we can work together, uh, I need you to fill in this personality test. Uh, and this application form. So I did that, and of course, the application form was designed to heighten my fear and to elucidate to me all of the problems that I had in my business that I thought he might be able to help me with. Uh, and the personality test was just that; it was like a DISC profile test or something, um, so he could actually come back to me and and be more relevant when we connected and forge a stronger connection. But here's what he said: He said, "I need you to complete it by Monday." Uh, can you do that? And I said, yeah, probably. He said, well, you said probably, so it sounds like it might be difficult. When would it be a good time uh, for you to complete this application? And I said, well, if we say by Friday next week, that would be perfect. He said, okay, we've got a deal. Uh, and for you to ho- uphold your end of the deal, if you haven't completed it by Friday, we can't work together. Is that okay? I said, yep. <laughs> so he doesn't have to do anything, right? He's not chasing anything. He has just yeah, made wow. it crystal. It's my qualification. You said you'll do it by Friday. I need a man of his word. Who, if we're going to work together, so if you haven't done it by Friday, it's off. I work with I work with recruiters. Um, still, funnily enough, I have one single client here in Malta where I live, uh, and I go in maybe every six weeks for a couple of days, and I train up their new hires and how to be good recruiters. And one of the biggest sticking points for them is how to get feedback from a proposal. Right, so they send a proposal, which is a person. And um, they send a resume through. So you were looking for a programmer. Here's a programmer. He's available. And then they hear crickets. They hear nothing. They're waiting for the decision maker to give them a yes or a no, but they hear crickets. So I've taught them that th- this version of the uh, preemptive closure, agreement to the next step, is, is what they should be doing. And it's working really well. So say, I'm going to send you a copy of the CV, and I'll give you a call back in 20 minutes to see what you think. At which point people either say, okay, or they go, whoa, 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 I'm going to need a lot longer than 20 minutes because I'm in a meeting. At which point you give them the ball and you say, great, when can I call you for feedback? And they'll say, oh, well, how about tomorrow morning? Good. You can then relax. You have no more pressure on you as a salesperson. You know exactly what their next step is. You're going to call them for feedback. If they go, if they still push back and say, no, 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 well, I need to discuss it with my team. We need to have a meeting about it. I'll give you a call sometime next week. You have a duty to bring it back to you again. Great. So what are we talking Wednesday or Thursday next week? Well, I don't know. I'll call you when I'm ready. I tell you what, I will call you on Friday next week if I haven't heard from you. And you can give me a yes or a no at that stage. Does that sound okay? And nobody says no to that they just say yes. Oh, so what does the salesperson then do? Relaxes, doesn't chase feedback, because he knows that at the very latest, he's going to get feedback on Friday. Sales manager says, what's happening with this deal? He says, well, no, one way or another on Friday. Uh, and if we don't hear on Friday, you send an email saying, I guess you're not interested at the moment. It's okay. Uh, I'm here if you need me. So when you make the pitch, Nathan, making the pitch is very straightforward. Here's the offer. Here's how much it costs. Um, and then you get them to say, so is that going to be a yesterday or a no today? And if they say they want to think about it, you use exactly that proposal. Uh, Unless you preempted it by saying you can't think about it, you have to make a decision, like Marcus did with me. you say, great, I tell you what, how long do you need to think about it? And they say, well, uh, a couple of days. You say, fantastic. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll make this offer valid for two more days' time, and I will call you on Wednesday unless I hear from you before. Is that all right? Do you need anything else to help you make the decision? Wow. That's all i got.
0: That's crazy, man. So finishing off, when it comes to the pitch, if the person's qualified, you've built rapport, you've built trust, you believe in what you're selling, do you try making a no-brainer? Yes, no, yes, yeah, of course. And then you just ask for the SAT?
1: Listen, there are systems for, for everything, Nathan. There are systems for administration. There are systems for recruitment. There are systems for finance there are systems for tax there are systems for allowing uh, employees access to the building i just think if we have a system for selling the 15 steps of professional persuasion for example then we eliminate a lot of the headaches right what do i have to do next what must happen next and these fit into the regular pipeline dashboards that people have you know which is typically identify opportunity initial contact Chat, 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 chat. Proposal close. Right. These all fit into that. Whether you're selling a nuclear reactor to a South American country, these fifteen steps are going to apply. You've got to qualify the prospect. You've got to build rapport. Um, you've got to present them a solution. You've got to give it a time frame. You've got to close at some point. Or whether you're writing a sales page or delivering a sale uh, or delivering a webinar, um, which might take place over sixty minutes or might be read in in five minutes, the same system has to apply because it helps move towards the close. I think creativity in sales can be a very dangerous thing. In my experience of seeing hundreds of employed salespeople, you know, being smart doesn't always help in sales because you start to second guess. You start to think you can read minds. Oh, this guy's great. He's definitely going to buy. Oh, he didn't. Why not? You didn't demonstrate social proof or you didn't preempt his objections or he doesn't have any money. Why didn't you qualify better? Because he said he was, yeah, it doesn't matter. What you said, When you follow the system, you will find that you close far more consistently than if you try to improvise every time. Love it. Awesome.
0: Well, um, look, dude, you've you've shared so much knowledge, so much gold. We can see you definitely know how to sell well. Uh, where's the best place people
1: can find you if they want to find out more? Sure. If you go to MatthewKimberly.com and you spell that with two T's, Uh, Matthew with two T's. Kimberly is L-E-Y at the end. MatthewKimberly.com. And um, what you need to do when you get there is just put your email address into one of the boxes that says, hey, give me your email address. Because... All of my best stuff is by email. I mean, all of my best stuff is by email. I rarely blog. Um, I don't have a podcast or a video cast, but I do write killer emails on a regular basis. Um, and they're pretty interactive as well. So, you know, if you reply to me, I'll typically reply to you and we could become like pen pals and, and, and maybe have a drink together one day.
0: <laughs> Love it, man. ABC, always be closing.
1: <laughs>
0: awesome. Well, look, uh Thank you so much for your time, Matthew. Before we finish up, was there one question or any questions that you wanted me to ask
1: you that I didn't ask you? You know, Nathan, not today. Um, I have nothing but respect for your broad-reaching intellectual uh, interests, and I never know which way our conversations are going to go, and I've been thoroughly satisfied with the experience that you've given me this morning. Thank you so much.
0: Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview